Welcome everyone to another episode of Bedtime with Dan. More Greek stories today, more bad pronunciations, but we're just going to get straight to it because these are normally quite long. So the first story is the Caledonian boar hunt. The fates attend all those who bleed and dream. The heroes of legend no less than us. Fair Althea, descendant from Elos, was cousin and consort to Oneus, king of the Caledonian in Italia. But one night, Ares himself, the god of war, came and lay in love with Althea, and in due course of time she gave birth to a son, and she called him Meliga. But when the boy was no more than seven days old, the implacable fates played her a visit, and pretended that Meliga would die when a particular piece of wood in the fireplace had burnt up. We have allotted the same span of life, said the ghastly crones, to your son and to this log, Naturally, Althea snatched the blazing log from the fire, and once she had extinguished the flames, she hid it away in a chest that no one could know about. And the boy grew to be a hardy warrior, strong and proud. But fate could not be averted. The chain of events began when Oneus angered the lady Artemis, chasty mistress of the animals. In his folly, he sacrificed to all the other gods, but ignored or forgot her. She sent a boar to ravage his land, but not just any boar, but a monstrous brute, as large as a hulking bull, capable of uprooting whole trees as it poured the soil for food. Maliga, expert with javelin and spear, summoned a true band of heroes to help him hunt down the beast. Peleus and Telamon came, Castor and Polydeus, Jason and the inseparable pair Theseus and Philotheus, Admos and the Sioux slayer Amaphaeus, and many others. There also arrived a fair huntress, Atlanta, who Hippomenus one day would wed by Gil. But for now, no sooner had Meliga set eyes on her that he fell in love. So they set out after the rampaging boar. They found trace of it everywhere. Fallen trees, trunks gashed by tusks, acres of ground churned into a useless mess, trampled crops, all other wildlife had fled in terror. For seven days they tracked it, hardly resting even at night. The rocks and the logs of the harsh wilderness served as their only pillows. Leaves were their mattresses, and a gibbous moon was all their illumination. At last they had the beast boxed up in a thicket, and they spread their strong nets to prevent its escape. But a boar is easily enraged, and fights back when threatened. For all their stature as heroes, several fell gored in the groin or the belly by its savage tusks. Bright blood stained the leaf-strewn ground. Eupalmon and Pelagon fell, and so did Hyles, Hippasus, and Nusimus. While Eurytion was killed by accident, when Peleus spread his spear too hastily in the dark and tangled thicket, but then, with a bellow of rage, the monstrous creature charged into the open, straight at Nestor of Pylos. No one ever... No one even had time to shout out a warning, and it looked as though his doom was assured. But he cannily used his spear to vault into safety in the tree branches. Despite the encouragement, Nestor shouted down to his comrades. It looked as though the boar would prevail, and even escape to continue the destruction on Calydon. But then Atlanta drew back her trusty bow, and the arrow grazed the boar's back and lodged into the folds of its neck. The sight of red blood made Anseus bold. Let's see what a man can do, he boasted. This is no work for a woman. 
As the boar charged at him, he let fly his spear, but missed. The enraged beast ripped out his bowels with his tusk, and he fell, gasping out his last breath along his steaming entrails on the blood-strained ground. The Maliga stepped up and released his javelin. It took the beast through the mouth and brought it crashing into the cloud of dust into the ground, instantly dead. The hide and tusk belonged to the, by right to Maliga, as the killer of the boar, but to honour the first strike, and because he desired her, he gave the spoils of the hunt to the fair Atlanta. But his uncles were there, the brothers of Athea, and they taunt him for being less of a man. Maliga's metal was up, and his father's blood flowed dark and strong in his veins. Before any of those present could draw breath, his mother's brothers joined the scattered corpses of the hunting ground. In the depths of her grief, Althea went to the old chest, the one in which she had hidden the log all those years ago. She removed the log from its hiding place and threw it on the fire, calling upon the Furies as avengers of kindred slaughter. Maliga immediately felt a burning sensation deep within, and he faded and died as quickly as the aged log in the fire. But Althea repented on what she had done and tore her cheeks and hanged herself in sorrow deeper than the sea, while her daughter was turned by Artemis into guinea hens and mourned their brothers forever with plaintive cries. But Gorge and Dinera were spared at the request of Dionysus, for Dinera was destined to become the second wife of Hercules, but Gorge bore Tidus from incestuous union with her father. The great city of Argos, rich in horses and cattle, is in the care of Hera, as Athens is of grey-eyed Athena. Now Io was the daughter of the river god Natchez and a priestess of Hera at Argos. As night's chariot winged its way across the sky and the bright foam from his horse's mouth settled on the earth as dew, Io was troubled by dreams in which she seemed to hear a voice, foolish girl, called you with a voice, deep and serene. Why do you guard your virginity when you could have the greatest of lovers, Zeus himself? Night after night the dreams returned, and eventually she gave in to those insistent clamour. When Zeus visited her, she opened to him not just her arms, but also her heart. But his behaviour had aroused the suspicion of Hera, and she came in search of him. Just before she caught the lover, Zeus detected her approach and changed Io into a cow. As a concrete plea of innocence, there's no one here, just this cow. But Hera could feign innocence as well as her husband, and she asked to keep the cow herself. Zeus had no choice but to let her take it. Hera summoned Argos, an earth-born giant with a hundred eyes that could see in all directions. Already famous for making the district safe against lawless monsters, she tethered Io to an olive tree within her sanctuary and set Argos to guard her, giving him the gift and curse of sleeplessness, so that none, so that none of his eyes could ever be tamed by weariness. But Zeus sent Hermes to free Io from captivity, and once the wily god had lured Argos, the all-seeing, to sleep with his soothing pipes, he promptly cut off his head. But Hera retrieved Argus's eyes and put them in the tail of her favourite bird, the peacock. Hera's dark rage had not yet run its course, however, and she sent 
a gadfly which tormented Io so badly that she wandered as a cow all over the earth, denied rest from its irritating bug. Every time she imagined it had gone, it would return and prick her with its sting. At last she came to Egypt, where with a mere brush of its fingers, Zeus restored her to human form. And when her son was born, she called him Apus, because she had been impregnated by the tender touch of Zeus. The royal lines of Egypt and Finica of Argos, Thebes and Crete, all took part to Pappus as their ancestor. In Egypt, the great-grandson of Pappus were Danus and Gaptus, fathers representatively of 50 daughters and 50 sons. Danus hated his brother and took himself and his daughter off to live in exile in Argos. Gaptus, however, naturally expected that his son would marry their cousins and follow them to Greece. This was a reasonable expectation and Danus was not in position to stand in his brother's way, except they ordered his daughters to kill their husbands on the very night of the mass wedding, before their husbands had taken their virginity. The vile deed took place as planned, or almost as planned. One of the Danids, Hypermastra, could not go through with it. She spared her husband, Linus, and their descendants became the rulers of Argos, but her sister couldn't avoid marriage forever. Danus arranged a foot race for all of their suitors, and the first across the line took the first choice of women. The second chose second, and so on, until all 49 were accounted for. Nor could the Danades avoid punishment for their terrible crime. In Hades, they were condemned eternally to try to repair their bridal baths by fetching water in sieves. Perseus and the Gorgon. Hypermastra. The Dionid who spared her groom bore him a son. They called him Abbas, and he in his turn had two sons, Protus and Sresus. These brothers fought even in the womb and later divided the realm of Argos between them, with Sresus becoming lord of Argos and Protus king of Tyrans. Sresus had a daughter, Dane, while Protus had several daughters, whose terrible ten-year madness is a lesson in not insulting the gods. For abusing their temple, Hera caused them to dress like slattens and to wander the hills imagining themselves cows. The wise shaman Melampus cured them and received in return a share of Protus' kingdom and the princess bride to bear his children. Now Croesus loved his daughter Dane, but naturally he wanted a son and heir to Argos. He consulted fair-shooting Apollo at Delphi, and the news was bitter. He would have no sons, and a son born of his daughter would kill him. They say that love conquers all, but Croesus let fear overcome love. He imprisoned his, his dear daughter within an underground chamber of bronze, leaving only a narrow aperture through which Dane took her meals and breathed sweet air. But Zeus concealed a passion with Dane, and no prison made by hands of man could keep him out. He turned himself into a shower of liquid gold and poured himself through the slit. Thus the great god lay in love with Dane. In due course of time a secret son was born, and Dane named him Perseus. The baby lived with his mother inside their brazen dungeon, but one day Croesus heard a metallic echoes of a young boy at play, and Dane's secret was discovered. Croesus laid ungentle hands on his daughter, 
demanding to know who the father was. It was Zeus, she cried, but Croesus didn't believe her. He locked both mother and child in a wooden chest and tossed them into the sea, so he would be absolved of their deaths. But the frail vessel caught in the net of a fisherman called Dictes, and he took Dane and Perseus to the home of the island of Cephas and let them stay with him. The years passed and Perseus grew up lethe and sleek. It was clear that he was favoured by the gods. Now, Honest Dictes, brother of Polydectes, the king of Cephlos, lusted after fair Dane, but confident in the protection of her son, she always spurned his unwelcome advances. Polydectus therefore decided to get rid of Perseus, and the proud youth foolishly made it easy for him. Polydectus invited him, along with all these important men of the island, to a banquet, supposedly to elicit contributions for the wedding of Pelops and Hippodema. Every man was to provide a horse, but Perseus was not rich enough to own one. The young man nervously quickened that he could as easily bring Polydectus the head of a gorgon as a horse. Seizing his opportunity, Polydectus held him to his word. He was to fetch the gorgon's head that would remove Perseus from the scene for a long time, perhaps permanently, and in the meantime, Polydectus could have his way with Dane. Perseus' quest began in despair. He knew about the Gorgons. There were three of them, Theno, Urel, and Medusa, and they had originally been the beautiful daughters of Phoises and Ceto, children of the earth and sea. Theno and Urel were fully immortal, but Medusa was a mortal woman, only far more fair. But Medusa fell foul of Athena, she claimed her looks rivaled Athena's own beauty, and she further angered the goddess by coupling with Poseidon in her holy sanctuary. For punishment, all three gorgons had turned into sturdy winged monsters with drooling and engorged tongues, tusks protecting their mouths, decaying skin and poisonous stakes for hair. They were creatures from a nightmare, and Medusa's only alluring eyes turned all who would look directly into them to stone forever. So Perseus wandered to a lonely part of the island and sat down to think. Gulls wheeled and cried overhead in the salt breeze, and there came to him two mighty gods, Hermes and Athena, telling him to have no fear. But what can I do, he said. I can't just confront the Gorgons. The gods agreed and recommend an oblique course. Did you know that Gorgons have sisters, they asked. If anyone knows a sister's weakness, it's another sister. You should find the Greer and compel them to tell you how to defeat the Gorgons. They told him about the three Greer, who had been born and lived as crones, hunched with age, as grey and chilling as the foam of the sea from which they came. The four stalled his next nervous question by giving him directions to finding them. When Perseus reached the distant seashore where the Greer lived, he asked them, at once for help. But who are you? demanded Emridu, staring at his direction out of eyeless sockets. Nasty to behold. It's a young man, croaked her sister Dino. I've got the eye so I can see. Give it here then, rasped Pemridu. There was a soft sucking noise as Dino prized the slick orb out of her socket and handed it to her sister. The eye sank into her head with a squelch. And after taking stock of Perseus, she passed the eye over to her other sister, Enyo. Swap you 
for the tooth, she said. I've still got a bit of raw octopus left to chew. As Perseus submitted to the scrutiny of the strange creatures, he blushed. But an idea occurred to him. He could see that the Greer had only the one tooth and then one eye between them, and depended on them utterly. Slowly and carefully, he edged closer to the grizzled woman. His moment came when both the eyes and the tooth were in transit between one Greer to another. Perseus grabbed them and stepped back. The shrieks of the crones were terrible to hear, at once like a seagull's harsh scream and the winds keening over storm waves. Give them back, give them back, give them back, they cried. No, said Perseus, not until you tell me how your sisters can be defeated. At first the Greer refused, only of loyalty to their kin. Perseus called their bluff and began to walk away with the hostage bits his feet crunching on the shingle, but he hadn't gone far when they called him back and agreed to help him. He pressed the eye and the tooth into an unseen hands of Ino, and the grizzled creatures burst into sing-song voice. Far distance in the home of our sisters, they said, on the western shores of the ocean, choose to the entrance of the underworld. Months will pass in the journey, or even years, unless you have some magical means of transport. And beware, their senses are very acute. It would be best to be invisible. Furthermore, even if you succeed in decapitating our sister Medusa, what will you do with the head? You cannot leave it uncovered because it will turn everything it looks at, including you perhaps, into stone forever. Perseus found their advice distinctly unhelpful. His task seemed even more impossible than it did before. So I've got to be able to fly, he said and be invisible, and safely transport the Gorgon's lethal head. Unfortunately, I can't do any of those things. But fortunately, said the Greer, we know how you can acquire these abilities. After the transformation of their sisters, Poseidon entrusted certain items of some to his daughters, the Senins. He was worried in case the Gorgons might run amuck and terrify the world, so he had to leave the means of their destruction in safekeeping, and they told Perseus how to find the nymphs. Away he sped on his mission, and the nymphs saw in him a true hero, and graciously loaned him a cap of darkness, a pair of winged sandals, and a special satchel. Hermes gave him a wickedly sharp sword, and when he drew it from its sheath, a cold wind whistled across the blade, and it showed no reflection on the moon's shining. Perseus flew with his sky shoes to the edge of the world, near the source of the vast river ocean that sweeps around the continents of Earth and found the foul gorgons asleep. Once he had spotted them from on high, he downed his cap of visibility and swooped down. Acting on the advice of Athena and Hermes, he used his bronze shield as a mirror to avoid the direct gaze of Medusa. Even with his handicap, he managed to cut off her head cleanly with one slice. Immediately, though, the gorgon's severed neck leapt her children by Poseidon, the winged horse Pegasus and the horse's human twin Chrysor, the father of Geryon, all his turmoil awoke Medusa's sisters, and the snakes on their heads seemed to have the power to penetrate the aura of invisibility in which he was surrounded. Perseus quickly stuffed the head into the satchel and flew off. While the hideous twins screeched and raved futilely, and their serpent hair writhed and hissed, as he flew over the desert of Africa, drops of blood fell from the satchel and the ground thus instrumentally gave birth to all of the poisonous snakes that dwell there.
While Perseus reached the coast of Palestine, an extraordinary sight greeted his eyes. A young woman had struggled helplessly against chains that bound her to a jagged rock. So close to the water's edge, the salt spray mingled with the tears of her face. The curious hero landed, tucked away his cap of darkness, and made inquiries in the local town. The woman was Andromeda, the daughter of the king Cephas, and it was he, her reluctant father, who had ordered her to be bound and left for the savage sea monster to devour, because this, he had been told, was the only way to stop ruinous raids on his land. The monster had been sent by the sea nymphs because Andromeda's mother had boasted that her daughter was more beautiful than them. Sometimes the sins of the mother are visited upon the daughter. Perseus was so taken by the girl that he was inclined to agree with her mother's assessment of her charms, and he began to negotiate with Cephas for the hand of Andromeda if he could rid the monster. The bargain struck and Perseus didn't hesitate. He returned straight away to the rock and freed fair Andromeda, just in time, for already they could see the creature breasting the foam, forging a furrow in the sea towards them as straight as a plough in the soft and stoneless earth. Perseus rose into the air on his winged sandals and drove the creature mad with fury by hovering just over the reach of its snapping jaws. Time and again he returned to the earth, each time to collect even larger boulders, with which he stunned the monster and drove it off. He and Andromeda returned in joy to the palace, already committed to each other, and when Perseus claimed his prize, Cephas' brother Phineas objected, for he wanted Andromeda for himself. He lured the young man into an ambush, but nimble Perseus found time to close his eyes and yank the petrified head out of his satchel. Perseus swept Andromeda into his arms and together they flew back to Cephas. They found Dane and Dictes huddled fearfully at an altar, to which they had fled for refuge from Polydectes' violence. Both, in their different ways, had been abused by the king, and they greeted the returning hero with tears of hope. Perseus strode into Polydictes' palace, the uninvited guest, the bringer of death, he found the king at banquet, surrounded by his supporters, in his lofty reception hall. And did you get me the gorgon's head? the king taunted. Poseidus reached in and pulled the ghastly object out of his satchel. While adverting his gaze, Polydectus and all the others were instantly turned to stone. The mocking laughter froze for even on the sneering lips. A quick smile fitted across Perseus' face. After he had returned the magical object to Hermes, Perseus gave the gorgon's head to Athena, who set it in the middle of her aegis forever. She is a terrible goddess, and anyone who sees her as she is freezes in awe and fear. Then the young hero returned with Dane and Andromeda to Argos. Croesus, hearing of their arrival, fled, but Perseus set out on pursuit. He caught up with his grandfather in Thessi, and the two were reconciled. But there is no escape from the word of fate. Perseus agreed to take part in an athletic competition, and the discus that he threw accidentally struck and killed Croesus, polluting even by his unintentional murder. Perseus exiled himself from Argos, but took nearby Tyrans as his seat after his great uncle Protus's death. He also founded Golden Mycena 
and in both places the Cyclops built the massive defensive walls for him, which still stand after all this time. Ella Rothen. As Perseus stands to Argos, Theseus to Athens, and Hercules to the Peloponsina as a whole, so Bellerophon stands to Corinth, the greatest of its heroes. His grandfather is Cephas, and his mother <coughs> had been loved by Poseidon, whose children she said he was. But he was compelled to leave the land of his birth after accidentally killing his brother, and he settled in Tyrans under King Proteus. The handsome youth attracted the fancy of a queen, Slemboa. She began by flirting with him in secret, which was tolerable, if uncomfortable. But in the end, she demanded an assassination. Bellerophon refused her, but hell truly has no fury like a woman scorned. And Svenboa told her husband that Bellathron had tried to rape her. Blinded by his desire for revenge, Proteus sent Bellerophon to his wife's father, Ibates, king of the light Lycia, with a sealed letter containing Severbona's charges and the request that Ibates get rid of his young visitor permanently. In order to encompass his death, Ibates therefore set him to cleanse Lycia of its plagues. By rights, anyone of the task should kill him. Ibates could only win. Even Bellathrone would die, or if he succeeded, Lycia would at least have been freed from terror. Bellathrone, however, was beloved of the gods. Poseidon gave him his son Pegasus, the white-winged horse that had sprung from Medusa's severed neck. But Pegasus was wild and untamed, and nothing Bellathrone could do would make the proud steed obedient to his commands. Keen-eyed Athena noticed the boy's troubles and wanted to help, came down by night from Olympus with a magic bridle, and with this he was able to mount and control the splendid creature. After a bit of practice he found that he could fire his arrows with deadly accuracy while gripping the flanks of the winged horse with his knees and thighs and he soared up to the heavens and swooped towards the earth in delight as he sped through the air his dark cape flowed gracefully out behind him the peasants worked in the field stared up at the sky in awe and amazement all his labors met with success first he shot down the fire-breathing chimera Dread offshoot, dread offshot, the typhus, which was ravaging Iobates' land. Three deadly arrows in quick succession, one of each of the creatures that made up its body. When he expelled the wild Soimi, the first inhabitants of Lycia, and drove them into the mountain fastestness, where they still live. Finally, he quelled the Amazons, for the warrior women were raiding Iobates' territory. Having single-handedly done all the Iobates wanting, Bellathrope set out in triumph back to the king's palace. But the treacherous king, true only to Proteus' request, sent a strong force of men to conceal themselves and take the young hero unawares. Not one of the ambushes returned alive, and at last Iobates was forced to recognise that Bellathrope was under the special protection of the gods. He realised that his daughter had been lying, and in recompense gave Bellathrope half his kingdom and another daughter's hand in marriage. When she learnt that her shamelessness and lies had been revealed, 
Selena Boa killed herself rather than living with humiliation. But being dear to the gods is not a sufficient shield against arrogance. Men encompass their own destruction. Bellathrone took into his head one day to ride on Pegasus back up to heaven to remonstrate with the gods about the injustice of life on earth, who among us has no wish to do such a thing. But the great steed, mindful of his father, refused to have anything to do with such a foolish enterprise and bucked his rider off to the ground. Benethrope broke his hips and spent the rest of his life as a wretched cripple. Perhaps in the end he had learned wisdom, but the storytellers do not say. There's another chapter done. I think we did that in a two-parter, which is getting pretty good. Um, hope you enjoyed it. I was, those stories are actually quite really interesting. I love Pegasus as well. I've just been watching Hercules. But hope you enjoyed it. More next week, and I'll catch you on Friday. See you later, guys.